Colette, David, Cassidy, John, Josh, Ethan, TJ. Thank you guys for leading us every week. You guys can have a seat. Yeah, I'm just so thankful for these, our musicians. Such a great way to start the new year with you guys. Thank you. My name, as I said, is Will. I have the privilege of serving as a pastor of this church. And if you haven't been with us for the last several months, in, in August, we began studying the book of Exodus. And today we come to the final sermon in this study of the whole book of Exodus. And I hope you've enjoyed this study as much as I've enjoyed teaching it. What I've found is Exodus is so surprisingly practical. Like how in the world, like I never would have thought that a story about a group of slaves thousands of years ago could be so practical to our lives today, but it has been. And just to recap kind of where we are in the story here at the end of Exodus, the people of Israel, they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, but God intervenes, raises up a leader in Moses and he, God defeats their oppressors. They were in slavery for generations and generations. And God, through all these miraculous events and through raising up an incredible leader like Moses, defeats their oppressors. He gave them dignity. He gave these, this, this oppressed people, he gave them dignity. He led them out of slavery, led them out of bondage, delivered them from Egypt into the wilderness. And then he started leading them to a promised land. And while he's leading them in the wilderness as they're journeying toward the promised land, he provides for them their every need. He provides for them food miraculously every day. It literally falls from the sky. He provides them water miraculously. They don't even have, they don't have to go gather. It just comes to them. And then God continually shows his mercy to them. And he's led them through the wilderness. He's led them toward the promised land all this time by a pillar of cloud and fire. So they've been walking in the desert, and off in the distance, they've been following God's presence, which is in this pillar of cloud and fire. And now at this point in the story, as we get to the end of Exodus, God speaks to Moses and says to them, he says, I don't want to lead you from far off anymore. I don't want to lead you from a distance. I don't want to go ahead of you and lead you. I want to come and dwell among you. I want to be with you and you to be with me. I want to build a tabernacle where my presence will come and dwell so that you will know where I am and you you can see me and I will dwell among you, he says to them. And so this births this idea of the tabernacle in the story of Exodus. Now, I could teach probably six months on the meaning of the tabernacle. There's just a lot there. Pretty much like the last 20 chapters of Exodus are talking about the tabernacle, and we're only going to look at one chapter today. But for today, it's helpful to know that the tabernacle essentially had two purposes for the people of Israel as they wandered in the desert. One, it was there to aid in the worship, in Israel's worship of God. This is where God's presence was going to dwell among them. This is where they knew he was. This is where they knew his presence was. And it's a place where they could know that God was present and that he could be encountered there, even in the wilderness. And if you know, if maybe you've heard the story of the Garden of Eden, where God came and he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden every day or in the cool of the night, it says. See, there was a specific place for Adam and Eve where they knew they could meet God daily. 
And the tabernacle is like a type of Eden. One author even calls it calls the tabernacle Eden remixed. The tabernacle is like a new Eden. It's where God comes to dwell with his people and where they can walk with him and where they can be in his presence. The tabernacle was meant to aid in their worship of God. When they're in the chaos of the wilderness, in the dryness of the wilderness, they could always look to that tent and the smoke billowing from it and they could go, that is where God is. God is with us. And the tabernacle allowed them to never doubt that God was with them. But the second thing that we need to know about the tabernacle is that it's from the tabernacle that God's glory would spread into the world. (laughs) You see, God is making a place in the tabernacle, a very specific place. God makes a very specific place in the very midst of chaos and danger. They're in the wilderness, remember? This is dangerous. But in this little specific place in the middle of the wilderness, there is order and there's worship. And there's beauty. And there's God himself holding all things together. You see, the tabernacle is a glimpse into what God wants to do in the whole world. God wants to bring order in the midst of chaos. God wants to bring wholeness in the midst of brokenness. And it's, you know, to us, we're like, like there's a model of the tabernacle. And like to us, to outsiders, it looks like a tent. Like it's nothing impressive. It's, it's a tent. But it's in that tent where God's presence dwells. And it's in that tabernacle, that's a place where God's glory came down and where the people experienced God. And as they would go and experience God, they would then leave His presence and radiate God's glory to the rest of the world. See, you remember a few weeks ago, we told the story about Moses going up the mountain and encountering God. And then when he came down the mountain, what was up with his face? It was like glowing. People were like, that guy's been with God. Like they could see that there was something different about his countenance, that he had been with God. There was something physically different about him. And the tabernacle was to do for the people of Israel what Moses encountering God on Mount Sinai was to, did for him. They would be able to go to the tabernacle to encounter God's presence, and then they would leave refreshed, forgiven, and having been with God. And as they left, the joy they experienced would then be carried out into their lives. See, one of the truths that the tabernacle teaches us is that God's glory always starts locally and then expands outward from there. Here's what I mean by that. See, this is one of the most encouraging themes in in all the scriptures. Other than creation itself, where God said, let there be light, and it all was. Other than creation itself, I cannot think of one place in the Bible where God speaks and in a moment the whole earth changes in one second. See, God's method of changing the world always seems to be by sending his presence or his glory into a very local place or a very specific person or people and then moving on from there. Here's what I mean by that. See, in the tabernacle, God's glory descends into the camp of the people of Israel. They experience God's glory and then they radiate God's glory to the rest of the world. The people of Israel were called by God to be a light to the nations. And the tabernacle in God's presence is where the light was to be sparked. And then from there they would go out and be a light to the world. But then in the New Testament, the glory of God descends into the world through one person in Christ. See, this is what we just celebrated at Christmas. That God came to dwell with us by becoming man. John chapter 1 says that he put on flesh, that God dwelled among us. 
And he lived and died, and God's presence dwelled in a specific body at a specific time in history. And in a specific moment, he died for the sins of the world, his glory on display for all to see. And then he rose from the grave. And that very act, coming from Christ, is where the whole world receives forgiveness, grace, and mercy. See, God comes down in one moment and in one lifetime, in the lifetime of Jesus. And then as Jesus does what he was called to do, God's glory emanates from that. And we're all saved because of it. And then as Jesus ascends to heaven, after Jesus ascends to heaven, it says he sends his spirit to dwell within his followers. So the presence of God no longer dwells among his people like it did in the tabernacle. But now the the Spirit of God dwells within His people. So we're all, for lack of a better word, little tabernacles. God dwells in us. And the Scriptures are clear that the purpose of the Spirit in you is that so you would be compelled to know Jesus more and serve others. This purpose for the tabernacle is the same purpose for your life. That you would know God, or the purpose of the Spirit in your life is the same purpose for the the tabernacle was for Israelites. That you would know God and that you would make God known to others. God's glory always starts in a specific place and then it radiates outward. And when the people of God, meaning us, who are indwelled by the Spirit of God, when they come together, what's that called? It's called the church. The church is local. Like there are churches, lots of them gathering right now. But there... but. In the New Testament, when the church is spoken of, it's always spoken of a local group of Christians that gather together. A group of people that are indwelled by the Spirit gather together as a community. And God uses that community to sharpen and encourage one another. And then we go out into the world to speak the name of Jesus. So the church is local. It's a specific group of people that gather together in a specific community at a specific moment in history for the purpose of worshiping and spreading that worship to the world. We are a local church. The presence of God, I believe, is manifesting itself with us this morning. Jesus himself said, when you come together, I am with you. I am among you. And we gather as a church for two reasons. The same reasons the people of Israel came to the tabernacle. Because the local church helps us to know and love God. And because the local church is God's plan to spread his glory into the world. And this is happening all over the world right now at this very moment. God is using hundreds of thousands of local churches to display His glory and make Himself known all over the world. Even in our city, like right now, in our neighborhood. Like there's, church, there's churches just a few blocks from us. Like that's, isn't that amazing to think of that right now there are little tabernacles of God's presence all over our city. And right now churches all over our neighborhood and all over our city are doing the same thing we're doing. They're worshiping Jesus. They're lifting up his name. They're being encouraged by his spirit. And then they will leave their church doors today, hopefully with the intent to spread the name of Jesus into the world and show his love to their neighbors. And the idea is that we will encounter God in, when we gather together and that, that that will encourage and motivate us and inspire us and strengthen us to show the love of Christ to the rest of the world. And the church of Jesus began at Pentecost in Jerusalem. And it continues to spread all over the world each day. And this is a theme all throughout the scriptures, that God does something locally, meaning he does it in a very specific one place, and then expands from there. And listen, as we begin a new year as a church, I want us to see, and I want you to see, that God has placed us here in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, 
to know Him and to make Him known in the world. And I believe that God's presence is here at Crossroads because I believe that God's Spirit dwells among His people. And just like God planned for the tabernacle to be the place of worship and mission for the people of Israel, God is calling us to see our church as the place where we worship Him and we are sent into the world to be a light to the nations. So the tabernacle is the place where the people of Israel could experience God's presence and then from there spread His glory into the world. And God gives them instructions on how to build the tabernacle. He told them what He wanted it to be like and then He commanded them, build it. And the people, they're so excited and they're invested and listen to what, uh, they're invested in what God is doing. Listen to what it says. Exodus 35, verse 4. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. Goat's hair. Tanned ramskins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Verse 10, it says, Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. And then there's several more verses where it lists all the instructions and the needs for the tabernacle. And then in verse 20 it says, Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, and for all its service, and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets and all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. Then it goes on and says all the things that they brought. And then verse 29, it concludes, it says, And all the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. So here's what happens. God informs the people that he wants to make a home with them and among them in the tabernacle. And they get so amped up and so excited that an epic giving campaign breaks out among them. Right there in the desert. They're just giving all their stuff. And the people respond to God's grace and mercy and his promises with generosity. Now listen, we've already taken up an offering this morning. We're not going to have another one, okay? I'm not trying to manipulate you here. But what I want you to see is that generosity is one of the marks of a person who has been transformed by God. If you want to know if your heart has been truly transformed by God, how generous are you with what God has blessed you with? And the first thing I want you to see in this story is I want you to see the motive for Israel's generosity. Why were they generous? See, many of you have been to churches where there's a great deal of pressure for you to give money to the church. Certain tactics are employed that often make us shudder and cringe. Some churches, they'll guilt you. They'll, you know, they'll, they'll show, uh, they'll, they'll guilt you. And they'll make you feel guilty if you haven't given enough, if you haven't done enough. That's one tactic that churches often use. Another tactic is some churches will make fra- false promises that were never theirs to make regarding your money. 
If you sow this seed of $921, it's always a specific number. If you sow this seed to Crossroads Christian Church, God will give you back tenfold what you gave. And then they'll always tell a story of some woman who gave $921 on a Tuesday and then got a $921,000 check in the mail on Thursday. And they'll say, if you sow this seed, God will think. Jesus never said that. And if a pastor it tells you, if you give this to this church, God will give you this in return, run from that church. Run. Those tactics play on your guilt. They play on your fear. They play on your idolatry. And they compel you to give your money out of compulsion, not out of a heart that's grateful for what God has done. Nowhere in the Scriptures, and especially not here in the story of Exodus, do you ever see God compelling His people to be generous through guilt or fear. The motive for generosity is always God's grace. And do you have any fans of Les Miserables? Did I say that right? Les Mis? I'm not French. Yeah. I love Les Mis, the musical, the Liam Neeson movie, the Russell Crowe movie, the book. I, I love this story. And so, uh, but there's the story, at the core of the story is, is Jean Valjean. And Jean Valjean, bitter criminal, <clears throat> who just left prison, who served his time. He's hardened criminal. He leaves prison. And a priest welcome him, welcomes him into his home, sort of like a halfway house as he leaves prison. And Jean Valjean is in this priest's home, and the priest gives him food and wine and spares no expense and welcomes him like he's his guest of honor. But in the night, Valjean still has the heart of a criminal, and he wakes up and he begins to steal the valuable silverware from the priest's home. And then he flees. And in the book, and in the Liam Neeson version of the movie, he even attacks the priest. It's not in the musical. But the next day, Valjean is arrested, and he's brought back to the priest. And, you know, these guys, they're just like, they want to get him. They're like, can you believe he stole from you? And the priest walks up, and the priest doesn't press charges. The priest, in fact, says, Jean Valjean, I'm angry with you. And he says, he didn't steal that. He says, I, he didn't steal that silverware. I gave it to him. And he says, Valjean, I'm angry with you because you didn't take the candlesticks that I offered you. And the priest looks in Jean Valjean's eyes. And Valjean says, why? Why are you doing this? Letting me go free and being generous to me in the process? And the priest says, you no longer belong to evil, Jean Valjean. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. And the rest of the story follows Jean Valjean. A changed man in that moment. No longer a criminal, no longer a thief, but a man who is generous. A man who lives for the good of others. See, the priest showed Jean Valjean great generosity and great mercy and great grace. And it changed Valjean into a generous person. The priest never told Valjean to be generous. He just was generous to him. And that took care of the rest for Jean Valjean. Now, why were the Israelites so motivated to be generous in their building of the tabernacle? Because they had been shown so much grace. God delivered them out of slavery, but not only that, think about exactly where we are in the story. 
I don't know if, if you read through Exodus, there, it starts talking about the tabernacle. God promises a tabernacle, and the people don't know it. Only Moses knows it. But when Moses, Moses goes down the mountain to tell them that God wants to build a place among them, they're worshiping a golden calf. And Moses is like, God wanted to build a tabernacle among us, and you're worshiping another God. And remember what God said? God said, you know what? I could just cut you guys off. I could walk away from this relationship right now. And they said, God, don't go. Don't go. And God says, you know what? I won't. I'll stay among you. He shows them. He could have destroyed them. But God said, you know what? I'll stay true to my commitment to you. And even though you've rebelled against me, you've disobeyed, and you've worshipped another God, I'm still going to dwell among you, and I'll still want you to build my tabernacle. And he offers not... In their sin, he offers not to cut them off and destroy them, but he actually moves in closer. And they saw God's grace toward them. They saw his generosity toward them, and that compelled them to give. They weren't compelled by guilt or fear, but they were compelled by God's grace. And on top of all of that, all of that, I think one of the reasons they were so compelled to give is they knew that all that they had wasn't theirs to begin with in the first place. Everything they owned was God's already. Like they were, ju- they were just managers of his resources. Like think about it. They just came out of slavery. Like they were slaves just a few months earlier. Where do you think they got all their stuff? All that jewelry, all the stones and all the gold and all the fabric. Where do you think they got it all? It told us when they were leaving Egypt, God destroyed their enemies and told them, plunder, take whatever you need. All of their wealth was a gift from God. All of their wealth was given to them by God. And they realized, they're like, I mean, they, they couldn't say before God, you know, I, I earned this. This is mine. How dare you ask of me to give to build your stuff? They couldn't say that. No, they plundered Egypt on their way out of slavery by God's power. Nothing they had was theirs to begin with. God gave it to them. They were slaves. And in a moment, God lavished wealth on them as he conquered their enemies. And when they recognized that all they had was entrusted to them by God, they were able then to give back to him with joy. They're simply giving God back a portion of what he's already given them. That's what Wanda, when she leads our offering every Sunday, that's what she tells us. We're just giving back to God what he's already given us. They're responding to God's grace. They're not giving out of compulsion. I want you to listen to these verses. Verse 5, it says, Take from among you a contribution to the Lord, whoever is of of a generous heart. If you're not of a generous heart, God's not asking you to give. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garment. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart brought an offering to the Lord. Verse 29, all the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. Does that sound like compulsion to you? That's freedom. God says, if your heart's not moved, don't give. But if you have a generous heart, give. Everything God did for Israel, here's what I want you to see this morning. They were generous because all that God did for them. And you and me, everything that God has done, everything that God did for Israel, He has done for you and me as well. This is why the story of Exodus has been so practical. One of the great Old Testament scholars, a guy named Alec Matir, says this about the story of Exodus. 
He says, think about it. Think of what an Israelite would say on the way to Canaan after passing through the Red Sea. If you asked an Israelite, who are you? He might reply, well, I was in a foreign land under the sentence of death and in bondage. But I took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. And our mediator led us out. And we crossed over. Now we're on our way to the promised land. Though we're not there yet. But he has given us his law to make us a community. And he has given us a tabernacle because we must live by grace and forgiveness. And he is present in our midst. And he will stay with us until we arrive safely at home. And Matir concludes, that's exactly what a Christian today can say, almost word for word. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, your story is just like Jean Valjean's and just like the Israelites. You have been forgiven a great deal. And you've been given a new life and a new name and even a new wealth. As I have been to you, Jesus said to his disciples, so be to others. See, our generosity as a church should always be motivated by God's grace in our lives because he's given us so much. Second thing I want you to see are the methods of generosity, how they were generous. The motive of generosity is why they were generous. The methods of generosity is how they were generous. First thing of how they were generous is God used their stuff to build his tabernacle. That's amazing to me. I've heard people say before, why does God need my money? Truth is, he doesn't. He could have He could have made the tabernacle appear by the command of his voice. He didn't need the gold or the fabrics that these people gave. He gave it to them in the first place. God doesn't need their gifts or their offerings, but he gives them an opportunity to participate in what he's doing among them. And this theme pops up all over the Bible, that God uses the humble gifts of his servants to bless others. Uh, There's that scene in the Gospels where there's this massive crowd of 5,000 men. And they came to hear Jesus preach. They're listening to Jesus. They're all hungry. They're getting restless. And the disciples start to freak out a little bit. They're afraid that a riot's going to break out because all these people are hungry and there's nowhere to eat. There's no catering or anything. Like they're they're all hungry. And a bunch of men get hungry. They start to get what is technically called hangry. And the disciples are like, they're they're going to, the riot's about to break out. And the riot's like, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to feel these people? And they're freaking out. And Jesus is like, chill. He's calm. And about that time, a little boy shows up with five loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus multiplies five loaves of bread and two fish and feeds every person there. Now, clearly, Jesus, I mean, if he can do that, he could have made food appear in people's stomachs. Jesus clearly could have fed all those people on his own, but he allowed that little boy to participate in that miracle. Can you imagine the excitement that that boy must have felt that day and for the rest of his life? Like he probably told that story a million times. I brought like a happy meal to Jesus and he multiplied it and fed everyone. The whole Barclays Center was fed. (laughs) The excitement that that little boy all his life must have have felt because he was a part of something great. God could have done it without him, but God chose to use that little boy's gift to do something spectacular. You see this all over the scriptures and you see this all over history that God's work on earth is always facilitated by the gifts of his people. And God doesn't just do the work for the Israelites. He allows them to be a part of the work. And that excited them. Listen, I've been the pastor of this church for five years now. Five incredible years. And when I look back over the last five years, I love seeing the way that God has used this group of regular people, sometimes with very little to give to be a blessing to each other and to the world. 
I mean, we just ended this year. We had the most generous year that you've, this church has ever had. And because of that, we are going to give away, or we've I've already begun to give away over $37,000 to various ministries all over New York and all over the world. We're going to give to, we already have given to Recovery House of Worship, a recovery ministry and homeless ministry in downtown Brooklyn. Pastor Ed Cologne preaches for us once a year. We love him. We've given to the Arab American Friendship Center right here in our neighborhood that ministers to our neighbors. They teach English. They help refugees and immigrants adjust to new life in New York City. They tell them about the love of Jesus. We've given a great deal of money to church planting all around the world through our partnerships with the Summit Network and Orchard Group. We have been able to be a part of church plants. Uh, We've been able to fund the work of church plants in Jersey City. A new church is coming this year in Lower Manhattan. There's a church revitalization in Park Slope. Uh, Just this year through the Summit Network, churches in London, Pittsburgh, Miami, Nashville, and on and on and on and on. We, gave, we began a partnership this year where we're giving a large portion of our tithes and offerings every year to Food for the Hungry, a community in the Dominican Republic where we're sponsoring children's education and we're sponsoring a water project that's going to bring clean water to a community that doesn't have it. Listen, all those things and more, God is using this little church on the corner of 67th Street and 4th Avenue to be a part of that. And here's the truth. If we didn't give a dime to those ministries, those ministries would probably still exist. Someone else would step up. But God doesn't need our money as a church. But He allows us to be a part of those things. And we get to share with Him in the great things that God is doing. And I'm grateful that God uses our stuff to fulfill His purposes in the world. I'm just glad to be a part. Why does God need our money? He doesn't. But we get to be a part of what he's doing. Second thing we see about their methods of generosity is that everyone had something to contribute. Verse 20, it says, all of the congregation of Israel was involved in this. All of it. And then it starts listing all these different kinds of people. The craftsmen did this. Some of the people did this. The seamstresses did this. Weavers did this. And all these people. And it brings all these people's vocations and their skills and their wealth. Brings it all together to build this tabernacle. It's just laundry list of different types of people with different skills and different resources. There was something for everyone. And everybody was invited to be involved. Listen, you don't control the resources. Or the gifts that God gives you. What you are responsible with, though, is what you do with the gifts God has given you. Everyone in Israel had different gifts, different abilities, different levels of wealth, but they all did their part. And no one in the Scriptures is singled out as being more important than the other. There's no list of names of the highest givers. There's no, like, gold club, platinum club, you know. Like, there's none of that. There's no plaque at the tabernacle that says who gave what. It just says, all of the congregation of Israel. And listen, I I can't even imagine that anybody was that wealthy. Like, this isn't a bunch of wealthy people building something great. These people were slaves. And now they're nomads in the desert. But God used what they gave and what everyone gave to build something spectacular. And that you may be here this morning and you say, I don't have much to give. But you can still play a part. And it doesn't matter about the size of your offering. What matters is the generosity of your heart. In the temple one day, Jesus watched as a poor woman threw two pennies into the offering plate. And all the people around her were snickering at her gift. What's she doing? Coming into the temple, giving two pennies. 
and they would dump their money. This is what they would do. They would dump, clank, 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 clank. And they got real prideful because they were giving so much money. And then this little old woman, she walks in, and all you hear is clink, clink. And everybody laughing at her. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, she gets it. That's what I want. People giving what they can and trusting that God will multiply and use whatever they have for God's glory. You may not have much to give, but what does the generosity in your heart is what God measures you by. Not by the size of your gift. And my favorite part of the whole story is the beginning of chapter 36, verse 3. This is awesome. This is my prayer for Crossroads. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, The people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave a command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, Let no one do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Listen, Crossroads, we have a family meeting coming up in a few weeks, and I wish I could stand up before you and hold a congregational meeting and say, look, guys, you're giving too much. Stop giving. We have enough. This is beautiful. Like Moses gets to a point where he literally says, like, God, God, there's nothing else to build. There's nothing else we can do for our worship. You've given enough. Stop giving. Now I want to end with this. If you're a guest with us and you're thinking, oh, I knew it. Pastor talking about money. Listen, we've been studying Exodus since August. We were going to get to this passage eventually. This just happens to be the week you came. We don't talk about money all the time. And like I said, we've already taken up the offering today. But Jesus did say, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And it's clear from the pages of Exodus that the Israelites, their hearts were with God. And when I think about the kind of church I want Crossroads to be, and when I think about the kind of person I want to be, I want people to look and say, he has a heart for God. Or they have a heart for God. And I believe, I really do. Somebody, somebody was sharing with me this morning. They were like, we got to move the curtains back. They're like, because man, God wants to do something in 2020 in this church. I believe that God has exciting plans for our church. And he wants this to be a place like the tabernacle where we can experience his presence and where we can then organize together to show the love of God to our neighborhood and to the world. And I do challenge you as we begin the new year, will you be a part of what God is doing in our community? By serving with us at the Next Steps table, there's all these various ways you can serve. Just like the craftsmen and the weavers and the, you know, the people did in the, in the tabernacle. There are areas where we need you to serve. Kids ministry, first impressions, set up, tear down, worship ministry. We need people to serve. But will you also consider being financially generous to the work of our church? Listen, we give... 10% of everything that comes in goes out of our church. And we give to incredible organizations and ministries all over the city and all over the world. 
And we want to fund our ministries. We want our kids, we want our kids' ministry to have all the resources they need. We want our outreach events to our community, our events with the Guild for Exceptional Children, our events to the back to school supply drive. We want those things to be awesome because we want our community to know how much we love them. And your giving helps fund those sort of things. And so I challenge you as we begin a new year, will you be a part of what God's doing here? I would love for you all to be a part of what God's doing in this church. If you're a follower of Jesus, God has already been so generous to you. Would you consider being generous as a response to His grace? Why don't you pray with me? God, we thank you for your generosity toward us. You did not tithe your blood, but you gave it all. And God, we thank you that you, um, we're so undeserving of anything you've given, but yet you've given us everything. And God, you are deserving of everything we have, but yet we often give you very little. And so God, I pray that you would stir our hearts to be more generous, not just with our money, but with our lives, with our attitudes, with our words, with our encouragement, that we would be generous people. And God, we thank you for all you've done. And before we take communion, we just want to say that we are grateful for your generosity toward us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.